He took pus from a lesion on a milkmaid's arm. It's a graphic image imprinted on many a history student's brain. The year was 1796. The man was Edward Jenner and the pus, well, it was full of cowpox. Jenner inoculated a little boy with it. The little boy became immune from smallpox as a result. The principle of fighting illness with a biological agent derived from that illness, or something very like it, was established. Truly a moment in medicine, but in this Moments in Medicine podcast, we ask why the subject of vaccination still provokes such strong, sometimes adverse reaction. And how do we balance our rights as individuals not to be vaccinated against our responsibilities in society not to pass on disease? Well, passing on their wisdom, I'm joined by three expert guests. Dr Helen Bedford. I'm Senior Lecturer in Children's Health at University College London Institute of Child Health. And joining us from Manchester, Michael Warboys. I'm a historian of medicine at the Wellcome Unit for the History of Medicine at the University of Manchester. And finally, Richard Halverson. I've worked as a general practitioner in central London for over 20 years. I've investigated vaccines for my book, The Truth About Vaccines, and I run a baby immunisation clinic in central London called Baby Jabs. Let's start by asking Dr Bedford, what is a vaccine? A vaccine is given by mouth or injection, and it's a way of artificially inducing immunity to a disease. What happens is you give the vaccine and the body produces antibodies, but also memory cells, which are very important. So the next time the person encounters that infection, the body can very rapidly produce antibodies. And Professor Warboys, that's exactly what Edward Jenner did in 1796, an extraordinarily long time ago. Yes, he noticed that milkmaids were not susceptible to smallpox. And he kind of guessed from that that cowpox was giving some kind of immunity. And he tried it on a a young boy called Edward Phipps. He exposed Edward to smallpox and Edward did not go down with the disease. And then Jenner started to promote this around Britain. And within a decade, it it had spread around the world. It was a really amazingly rapid spread. Extraordinarily, though, Jenner was not the first to notice this phenomenon, Dr Bedford. Well, it's been recognised for millennia that there are certain things that you get once and, and only once. And there's a very famous drawing of a Chinese physician in ancient times. In those days, physicians in China were paid if their patients stayed well, so they looked at ways of preventing disease. And this Chinese physician has taken the crusts from uh, smallpox lesions and crushed them up and is blowing them into his patient's nose using a hollowed out bamboo cane. Extraordinary. We also have dominating this history, the figure of Pasteur. Michael Warboys, how did Pasteur develop Jenner's work? Pasteur was a French microbiologist who, in the 1870s and 1880s, decided that it would be interesting to explore whether Jenner's principle of using one disease to protect against another would work for a number of other diseases. And his first procedure was with sheep. And in a very public demonstration, he vaccinated sheep, giving them a modified version of anthrax. And he found that this gave immunity. And then he developed it with rabies. And then subsequently, other microbiologists and doctors around the world started to develop other vaccines. Essentially, they were modifying existing diseases, changing the germs so that they weren't as virulent. And they produced immunity. They produced antibodies. They produced memory cells. And this gave people who'd been injected with this long-term immunity. 
that sort of leads Richard quite Hamilton. nicely into some of the concern about vaccination in a way, is that Pasteur is alleged to have said on his deathbed that the microbe actually is nothing, but the terrain is everything. In other words, it's not so much the bug itself that is so crucial that we should be fighting against, but actually we should look more at the environment that the bug is settling on. In other words, the human body, the human condition. Why is it, for example, that very, very virulent bugs that can cause meningitis and kill so quickly actually live harmlessly in the nose of so many of us? We'll come back to whether it's the best thing for everybody in a minute. What I want to do is move it slightly forward historically. From Jenna onwards, this suddenly spread like wildfire. Dr Helen Bedford. Yes, there was a rapid take-up because in those days smallpox was a scourge. There were many, many deaths from it. Virtually everybody got it. So people were very anxious to prevent this very frightening disease. And of course, like most things, it was mainly the richer people that took it up first. So there was a, a system of preventing smallpox called variolation, which was developed in eastern countries, which was adopted into the West. And this was uh, introduced largely as a result of the wife of the Turkish ambassador who brought it back to England and encouraged the uh, royal family to have their children immunised. But it was pointless immunising the toffs, as it were, if you didn't immunise everybody because everybody came into contact. And as I understand it, as early as 1820, it became compulsory. People had to have it. And that's when the trouble started. It didn't become absolutely compulsory then. It came compulsory in the 1850s. But there were moves to do that for the simple reason that there was a greater benefit to the community as a whole if everybody was vaccinated. Richard Halverson? There was a a unique act uh, in this country in 1853 which made vaccination compulsory for all children born in England and Wales. Unique because it's the only vaccination that's ever been compulsory in the United Kingdom. And in in fact, it was the onset of compulsory vaccination that really kick-started what one might call the anti-vaccine movement. In 1854, a chap called John Gibbs wrote a booklet entitled Our Medical Liberties, and there were riots in several towns. And in 1869, a chap called William Johnson from Leicester was the first of many to be sent to prison for two weeks for refusing to allow his child to be vaccinated. Michael Warboys, throughout history, there's been objection to vaccination. Now, are these objections to do with science? Are they to do with freedoms? Are they to do with prejudices? There's certainly to do with freedoms, but there are also medical objections. Going back to Jenna, it's the question about what is actually being inoculated into the individual. In the case of smallpox, it, it, it was animal matter. There was worries because of the way that the pus was collected from other children that it was introducing other diseases. There was also worries about side effects and whether the vaccine was causing diseases like syphilis or whether it was reducing the overall health of the individual. So there are medical objections, there are libertarian arguments, but there are also other concerns as well. Initially, it was thought that vaccination was going against God's will and there were religious objections. Um, There were also feelings that doctors were only vaccinating to get money because doctors were paid for every vaccination they made. Um, I want to to come to... uh, Dr. Helen Bedford for a moment, because we need to understand something here called herd community. It's a kind of animal metaphor, appropriately so. Can you explain that? Well, the term herd immunity or community immunity simply means that if you have sufficient people in a community who are immunised, 
they will protect those who are unimmunized. And the level of immunity you need depends on two things, the infectiousness of the organism. So, for example, you need very high rates of immunity to create herd immunity to measles and the effectiveness of the vaccine. And it's a very important principle because what it means is that people in the community who can't be immunized because they may have some medical condition or they may be too young or they may be pregnant, are protected by the immunity around them. So how does this objection affect that notion of community immunity? After all, once people start objecting and the levels go down, the whole thing falls apart, doesn't it, Helen Bedford? Well, the most recent example, obviously, is MMR vaccine and rates were at 92% before we had the controversy and fell to a low of 78%. Where do we need them? We need them to be about 95%, 92 to 95%. And Michael Warboys, over time, Mm -hmm. how did the history of objection actually affect community immunity, do you think? Well, if we we take the 20th century and smallpox, both the declining incidence of the disease and the conscientious objection clause led to declining vaccination rates. And there were occasionally during the 20th century sporadic outbreaks of smallpox and in certain communities, there was, a, there was a famous outbreak of smallpox in Sheffield in the 1920s. And that led to a mass move to vaccinate the whole community. And in, in many northern cities, Sheffield, Manchester and the West Riding of Yorkshire, there, there was considerable resistance to vaccination. But once the disease was there in a high profile in the community, people changed their minds because the risk versus benefit calculation changed because of the changing incidence of disease. Richard Halverson, I want to bring the history, as it were, forward to the present time when a mother sits or father sits with you in your surgery and it's time to make that decision about vaccination what do you say how do you inform them because this is quite a complex issue it is and and we've touched on in a way the conflicting drives we're partly immunizing to protect the herd so when a parent is immunizing their child they're being asked partly to immunise their child for the benefit of others. Certainly some parents are reluctant to think that way. They've brought up their little baby and their precious little baby is the most important thing in their lives. And the idea of doing something that potentially could cause harm to their baby for the benefit of others is a difficult one for them to get a handle on. And partly we have to remember that that's what vaccination is about. It's, it's, It's the benefit of the large majority but there are a few that are sacrificed for that. There is no question that vaccines can cause damage, rarely. Rarely it can be serious. There wouldn't be vaccine damage payouts in all countries if that were not the case. So it is a case of a very few are sacrificed for the large majority. That is how the system works. I think this is extraordinary terminology. A lot of research has gone on to the safety of vaccines. This is a very, very important thing to monitor. Childhood vaccines have a problem, basically, because they're given to very large numbers of children and also given at an age when developmental and other problems are being recognised for the first time. This is in children mainly aged 0 to 2 years of age. And it's very, very difficult for parents sometimes and some health professionals to see quite what's going on. If we think about a condition like febrile convulsions, these are fits that come on with fever. A very high proportion of children have these. About 2 to 3% of children aged between 8 and 18 months will have febrile convulsions. And if your baby's just been immunised, of course, you're going to say it was the vaccine what did it. But we 
careful studies have looked at the rate of febrile convulsions following MMR vaccine, measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, and found that it only happens about one case in one to 2,000 cases following vaccination. In a way, vaccination has been its own worst enemy in that by lowering the rate of incidence, people don't hear about the disease, children don't die of the disease, and people think, well, I will actually risk my children getting whooping cough. This was the argument in the 1970s when it was suggested that the whooping cough vaccine, when given with um, tetanus and diphtheria, caused brain damage. Parents would calculate that, well, whooping cough isn't killing people, we have antibiotics now, it's no longer a serious illness, so as far as I'm concerned, I will take the risk of my child getting the disease because it's not going to kill them and it's not going to be a serious illness. And I think one can see the same with the recent MMR, that measles is no longer the killer it was. So in a way, the, the public health community and the NHS and whoever is, is promoting vaccination has this problem of dealing with public perceptions of risk and, and how individuals see them differently to communities. Richard Halverson, as, as a GP, do you emphasise to patients who, who may be saying, I don't want the vaccination, what risks they face? Do you give them the grisly details about measles and mumps? Uh, uh, I do um, give them, and I probably give them in a different way to Helen. A hundred years ago, measles was killing ten to 12,000 children a year. So it was, it was a major public health problem and a serious threat to us. But uh, by the time of the introduction of the vaccine in 1968, the death rate had fallen to just under 100 a year on average. In other words, it had fallen by 99% before the introduction of the vaccine. So the vaccine cannot be really uh, said to have played a large part in the fall of deaths from measles. Dr Helen Bedford. I don't think anybody would argue with that. I think we know that it's a it's as a result of... Not all parents do. They, they're under the impression that measles is not a threat because of the vaccine. The death rate from measles decreased long before the vaccine came in as a result of other public health measures, better housing, clean water, etc. Nobody would argue with that. But there is no question, and if you compare vaccinated populations with unvaccinated populations that the rate of the disease is very much lower in vaccinated populations. Michael Warboys, can history help us in any way whatsoever? Well, it tells you that compulsion doesn't work. The public wants choice. They don't want the state to tell them what to do with their children. But perceptions change. If the community wasn't vaccinated against measles and measles rates suddenly started to go up, then history suggests, and this was certainly the case in smallpox epidemics, that people rush to have their children vaccinated. OK, so, that's great. Thank you very much. Professor Michael Warboys, Dr Helen Bedford and Dr Richard Halverson, thank you all for sharing this moment in medicine.